You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad you're here, as always. And if this is the first time that you've ever tuned in, welcome. I'm so glad that you found the show. Now, for many kids, school generates stress and challenges beyond studying for tests and doing homework, especially when those kids have conditions like ADHD or other sensory processing disorders. Now, in this episode, we are diving into the world of twice exceptional kids. These are kids who are intellectually gifted while simultaneously having learning differences like ADHD. And my guest is Julie Skolnick, and she's not just an expert, but a parent to three twice exceptional children. And through her service with Understanding Comes Calm, she has supported and guided thousands facing similar journeys. And her new book, Gifted and Distractible, unveils the unique challenges these remarkable kids face while providing strength-based hands-on strategies for their success. In this episode, we're exploring her Cycle for Success framework, which demystifies the why behind challenging behaviors while emphasizing interventions that support the whole child. Julie is sharing insights on morning and bedtime power struggles, homework stress, understanding quote-unquote bad behavior, identifying triggers, and becoming an advocate for your child with their teachers. Now, my hope is that this episode helps you work with, not against your child, how to create effective routines, and how to navigate the educational landscape with confidence. I mean, like every episode that I put out, it's, it's heavy into the educational space. My goal is that it equips you with the knowledge that you can then turn around and use almost as quickly as today. Like what she's sharing, you can use today to improve your life, to improve the life of your child. And my hope is that it creates a positive ripple effect in all of your lives. And then you can share what you've learned here today with a friend who might be struggling with her child, um, and even just to help educate your kids' teachers. So that's my hope with this episode. I think you're going to learn a lot. I think you're going to love Julie. She's amazing. So uh, share it out if you feel called to. And uh, please enjoy this episode with Julie Skolnick. Well, welcome, Julie, to the show. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Before we get into your amazing new book, can you give us a little bit of a bird's eye view of the life events that led you to the work you're doing now and the writing of the book, Gifted and Distractible? Sure. Thanks for asking. So... I am the founder of With Understanding Comes Calm, which is sort of my mantra, right? If we feel understood, if we feel like we understand others, there's calm. And I started my service about 10 years ago. I happen to have three twice exceptional kiddos, currently 22, 20, and 14. And I felt like the world was really glass half empty about this awesome profile of being identified as gifted with learning differences. And so I really wanted to shout from the rooftops and primarily at first to parents about the incredible strengths and a way to positively reframe about their children. And that kind of morphed over the last 10 years into a lot of services that I provide for lots of stakeholders within the twice exceptional field, including parents, TUI adults, uh, teachers, and clinicians. And it culminated this past year with the publishing of Gifted and Distractible, Understanding, Supporting, and Advocating for Your Twice Exceptional Child. I love it. I love it. And so just to, to set the groundwork, what is, how do you define a twice exceptional child? 
yeah, I tried to slide that in there. So it's uh, somebody who is, and by the way, we don't outgrow our two E-ness and two E and twice exceptional are synonyms. So you are identified as gifted with a learning difference or learning differences. Quite frankly, nobody's really two E. Most people are three, four, five, ten E. But there are different learning differences, anything from ADHD to autism, processing speed, anxiety, social, emotional, executive functioning, all of the things, right? That represents what is what I call the distractible part. And then we have the gifted part, which quite frankly, Liz, is actually more misunderstood than the distractible part. Mm. Most people think gifted means smart, bright, potential, right? So when you read the book, you learn about my three-layer cake of giftedness, where that assumption is the frosting above, round, and between all three layers. And it's kind of thin, that layer of frosting. But then you got these three big chunks of cake or characteristics, which include asynchronous development or developing your strengths and challenges at different rates and perfectionism, the other side of which can be anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then what's known as overexcitabilities in gifted research, but you can think of as intensities in five areas, intellectual, emotional, imaginational, sensual or sensory and psychomotor. Wow. Interesting. We've done shows in the past talking about um, hypersensitive children and how that in itself can be considered bad and negative because, you know, it is different than than the norm, whatever the norm is in our culture and how that can be looked on as bad, especially in a school setting. And I love that the work that you're doing addresses that and reframes that. Can you talk about how best to do that, especially for parents who who know their children are smart, they know they're capable, but they're getting these messages, especially from school and society, that they're just not fitting in, they're just not right? I love this question. So actually, the word overexcitabilities sounds, which sometimes if you, if you research it, it's also OEs, the shortcut with those two letters, OE for overexcitability, but actually it was translated from Polish and should have been super stimulatabilities, mm-hmm. which is way less negative than overexcitabilities. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is the overexcitabilities in those five areas can show up as an incredibly fulfilling Um, way to organically connect to the world, right? Like you get taken away by music and tastes and textures for sensory overexcitability. We dial up or dial down the input. And how amazing if you can eat something and identify all the flavors and spices in it, or you can listen to music and be just taken away by the vibe and the cadence and whatever it is. Um, Intellectually overexcitable, you know, a lot of times, and I use this example almost all the time when I talk about intellectual overexcitability, and that is that child who raises their hand incessantly or yells out the answers because they have this incredible rage to learn and mm-hmm. curiosity. Don't we love those two things? But are you know frequently told, hey, you know, Liz, you've asked enough questions. It's time to give Julie a turn, right? Like, that's not fair. And that comes with huge assumptions and really, quite frankly, misunderstanding. Not even just not understanding, but misunderstanding. So we have to look at the flip side. We have to say, wow, that kid who's raising their hand all the time or shouting out answers, they're not trying to be the center of attention. They're not trying to hijack the class. They're just really passionate and motivated. That kid who is psychomotor overexcitable, who needs to move to learn, 
an incredible font of energy they have. I once during COVID had a client reach out and say, oh my gosh, Julie, my, the child was nine. My nine-year-old is like jogging around the dining room during class. It's really distracting. And I was like, well, bravo, high five to that kiddo who figured out what she needed to be able to attend. Sorry, teacher, if that's disruptive. Like, here's your option. Would you like the camera off? And how would you like her to connect with you to let you know that she's still with you or is answering questions? Because really, that kid wasn't riding all over the house. She was staying in the room where her laptop was, where she was attending, right? So we have to look at the positive in that way. There's always a positive flip side. As, Mm. as, uh, As Ross Green says, kids do well if they can. So when they're not doing well, that means there's something we need to uncover. We need to don our detective hat, figure out what's the trigger, what's the problem with the environment. Instead of changing the kid, let's change the environment. Yeah. What are your thoughts on medicating children for things like ADHD, um, behavioral issues? Because again, that seems like an easy fix solution versus donning the detective hat to taking that extra step to understand our own psychology and that of our children. What are your thoughts on that? So first and foremost, disclaimer, I am not an MD or a psychologist. So my opinion is just that, an opinion. But I think the goal, first and foremost, is to teach our kids their lagging skills. So in some cases, medication can make a child more available for that learning. And if a family decides to go down that route with consulting a psychiatrist and their pediatrician, uh, then they have to stick with it and not take vacation holidays. Like you either need medication to increase your enjoyment of life, or you need somebody to pause and have patience and teach lagging skills and see if you can learn those lagging skills in a positive way that does not include external motivation, which does not teach skills. Yeah. It almost seems like this is really a primer, your book, for the parent or for the educator. I mean, because really that's where it starts. And our children are getting their own inner voice from what we're telling them, especially from ages one to seven. So when you were writing this, were you who was really the intended audience? Was it for the child or was it for the parent who's going to be reframing all of these things that society has really turned a blind eye to? I, I feel like until now. So I always say that I need to circle the wagons of the grownups because the kids don't have the power. So the first stop for me, there are a lot of people and professionals who work with kids. I exclusively work with grownups, whether it's a parent, a TUI adult, a teacher, or a clinician, because I'm trying to increase understanding. So the book is divided into three sections. The first, and it follows what I call my cycle for success. The first stop on that cycle is on deep understanding. So the first four chapters are all about understanding, understanding what it means to be gifted. You'll see that three-layer cake there, understanding what the learning differences are that I see most frequently coexistent with giftedness. Then the second section is 200 pages of strategies, literally strategies to positively reframe, to anticipate. In fact, it actually follows my acronym that I've trademarked, which is PRAISE, which stands for six categories of strategies. Personal connection. How do we make a personal connection with a kid who is challenging, who Mm -hmm. triggers me, myself, as a parent or a teacher, right? Personal connection, 
reframe. How do we reframe all the behavior to see the positives and the strengths? This kid is actually working hard. Personal connection, reframe, anticipate. You know, right now, audience, you're sitting there thinking about the times when it's tough. Transitions, morning routine, evening routine, any of that sensory stuff that comes up. You actually know a lot of stuff. So let's anticipate because if you try tomorrow, what didn't work yesterday or today, I promise you it's still not going to work. So how do we use what we know? And then incentives and choices, sense of humor and exercise. So that's the strategy section of the book. And then last but not least is the advocacy piece. How do we collaboratively advocate between parents and educators? How do we craft this child's story? How do we fold in strengths, struggles, what works, what doesn't work? And what's the one thing, if we had only one thing, what's the one thing we want teachers to know about our kid? And how can teachers advocate on behalf of a 2E kid when maybe the parent doesn't understand what 2E mm. is? So it's really holistic. And so to answer your question, which was, who is this book for? It's really for everybody. And I'm actually hearing from 2E adults that they're really finding, they're feeling seen yeah. in reading this. Yeah. Um, now you said you have some 2E children. Do you think it, there's a genetic component? component? Are you 2E yourself? So 100% it's genetic. And Uh between my husband and I, the giftedness is there and ADHD is around. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, as far as MI2E, so here's my answer to that, Liz. If you use a synchronous development as a defining characteristic of giftedness, as I do in my layer cake, kind of sounds like anybody who's gifted is actually 2E, right? Right. Math is really hard for me geography is really hard for me. And so, you know, I I never was diagnosed with dyscalculia, which is a mathematical learning difference, but I would be shocked if I wasn't. Right. Oh, this is so interesting to me because I feel like even with myself and I'm thinking of like my father who was also very sensitive, very gifted, but I think, you know, in that generation, you couldn't really go outside the lines or you'd get the bell, you know, essentially. Yeah. It's yeah, just a wrap on the knuckles. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because you didn't fall in line. And now it's like that paradigm, that whole paradigm is shifting to a greater understanding. Do you feel like ADHD really then is a sign of greater intelligence, of greater sensitivity to the world and almost an inability to kind of fit in a box because we're not meant to be that way? I literally just gave a talk last week at a conference and I had my entire audience of about 150 people stand up and say at the top of their lungs, ADHD is an awesome brain. It was so great, parents and educators. So I renamed ADHD in a blog that I wrote. I write a blog once a month and have been doing so since 2014. And I renamed Mm it hyperattention activity deficit because they can pay attention to so many things and they need to move. So I once mentored a young man who thought of ADHD as the more evolved brain. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that was such a great reframe. ADHD is an amazing brain, a creative brain, an energetic brain, an outside the box brain. So as far as intelligence is concerned, you can be ADHD without being gifted and you can be gifted without being ADHD. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I would talk to the intelligence of ADHD but certainly the creativity and certain abilities. Like I want my EMT or my firefighter for sure to have ADHD because yeah. they are going to be on it. You know, if I'm stuck in a, in a dark alley, I want somebody with ADHD with me. They're going to notice all the things. 
Right. You know, but that's why executive functioning is hard for people identified with ADHD or gifted people because they notice so much more. They're crunching more data, which right. also speaks to processing speed, right? Processing speed, I never call slow. I call it deeper. You're processing yeah. so much more. Yes. Yeah. I was just watching a documentary on Netflix the other day. I think Atlantis Morissette was in it. I can't remember the name. It was something about Again, that sensitivity component. And that seems like it's just one component that you talk about in the book, in the cake, in the layers. Why is that, that processing deeper? Why is that so much, I don't know, why is that a greater part of this functioning that we're doing that doesn't necessarily fit into the school system or, you know, the soccer team and all of these things? It's like, it's obviously such a great thing. Why isn't society, why isn't culture up to date with that? Why don't they recognize that and praise that? Why is it ostracized? Well, so I'm hearing two things. You're asking about sensory sensitivity and processing speed. So sensory sensitivity, we have sensory seekers and sensory avoiders. So if you are the teacher and you are a sensory avoider and you have sensory seeker students, whew, that's tough. And vice versa. If you're a sensory seeker and you have sensory avoider students, those students are going to be melting down big time. Wow, right. Yeah. So so we all are born looking through our own eyeballs, I like to say. And it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for gifted kids to look around and be like, wow, why aren't you all so worried about what's happening on the planet? Why is this not like in your forefront all the time? Or why are you not interested in every single thing there is to know about the planets or sharks or the environment, right? Like, like it's hard to get to understand another person's perspective. And I think yeah. that actually answers your question, Liz, because what's unfamiliar for us and for all humans tends to be a threat as opposed to a... Dan, and actually, is there a pretty simple way to address that, like by turning the lights off or by... Of allowing and normalizing a, break, a sensory break or whatever. But to talk about processing speed, I do want to say that sometimes um, parents ask me to meet with teacher teams and sort of describe their child, help with the understanding, and then answer questions and give suggestions for in the classroom. And so one time I was doing this, and a, this advanced math teacher looked at me after I did this presentation on the student that she had, and she said, wait a minute are you telling me you can be gifted with slow processing speed? <laughs> I was mm. like, yes, yes, I am. And think of it this way, all the depth, right? Like if you, if you get a word problem as a 2E kid and it's like Sally in her red dress got into the car and drove three miles and blah, blah, blah. 2E kid is going to be like, wait a minute. What was she wearing a dress? Cause she's going someplace fancy. Was it long sleeve? <laughs> was it short? Like what kind of a car who was driving? Mm. Was she supposed to get in that car? Right? Like all those questions come to that brain, that beautiful, beautiful brain. So really it's a lot of executive functioning, um, teaching how to prioritize doing a cost benefit analysis of whose priority matters. Mm. Right. Do I really care? And if, and, and I do this a lot with adults, right? Like small talk, is a big yuck for two-e adults. Yeah. But if you also have a goal of making friends and you're going to a party, then okay, let's plan for, is five minutes okay? Is 10 minutes? What can you commit to? And then like move on, take care of yourself. You did what you needed to do and you decided that was enough, right? But it ha starts with perspective, which answers your question of why, why don't people get this? Because yeah. they are looking in through their own experience. 
That makes so much sense. And I love that you're laying it out in the book because it does give people who don't see the world through these higher executive functioning eyes, the the wherewithal to be like, oh, okay, I understand it because, you know, here's a story, like the math story, that's perfect. What would you say out of the 200 pages of strategies, I don't know, is is at the top of your list? What do you love the most? What was like when you were writing the book? Okay, I definitely have to mention this. So I actually love all my strategies because they have been used for so many years Mm -hmm. and they are life-changing. But I will give you, there is no magic bullet, but the secret sauce is noticing verbs, verbs like action words, like not nouns, not adjectives, but verbs. So when your child or your student, so the first step of this is to think of what is the behavior I really want my kid to do that they're not doing? Okay, number one identify what matters to you because you Mm -hmm. can't do it all at once. It has to be one per week, really. Then we think, okay, does this child actually understand my expectations and how to do this responsibility? And therein lies actually, Liz, a really important aha moment, which is most people think they are giving expectations when they're giving responsibilities. So for instance, Mm -hmm. clean your room I don't know what that means. Obviously, it doesn't mean pick up all the Lego pieces on my floor because I'm in the middle of a Lego build. So that can't be part of cleaning my room, right? So is it actually clear? The responsibility is clean your room. What are all the expectations? So you have to make sure expectations are clear, concise, consistent, and appropriate. So in our noticing verb strategy, number one, you're going to think about the behavior. Number two, have I made it crystal clear what my expectations around this responsibility are? And number three, when my child or my student actually starts doing those things, I'm not going to say, good job. I'm so proud of you or thank you, because that means they're doing it for me. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm going to say, hey, I noticed that when you came home, you went upstairs, you walked into your room, you looked at the floor, and as we talked about, you sorted laundry, books, toys. And after you put those in the piles, you then started to think about where everything needed to go. And so you notice as many verbs. Mm. If for instance, an easier example is, let's say you want your child to walk in and rather than throwing their backpack into the foyer, you want them to hang up their backpack in the closet on the hook, right? Well, you've, you've identified this as something you want your child to do. You've made sure they understand the expectations and they've agreed to them, and they've said them back to you, and so you know they're crystal clear, and now when they do it, you're going to say, hey, I saw when you came home, you walked in the front door, you walked over to the closet, you opened the closet door, you took your backpack, you hung it on the hook, you unzipped it, you took your lunch out, and you put that on the island. Isn't that so much more powerful than, hey, thanks for hanging up your backpack, right? Because, and I'll tell you why this is so effective. We know that 2E kids are redirected 40 times more than neurotypical kids in a classroom. Why can't you? Why won't you? When will you? Why don't you? That's the song they hear all the time. Yeah. And so when their their efforts are noticed, they actually might thank you. And we don't say thank you to them or I'm proud of you or good job even because we want this just to be about noticing their efforts, not that they're doing something for me. Mm, I love that. I love it. Okay. So what if your kid is a little bit older and you're like going through this list and they're looking at you because we all know they're very intelligent and they're looking at you like you're a crazy person. Yes. And that happens. They do look (laughs) at you like you're a crazy person. And you know what you do? You say, I'm just noticing. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. Not even I'm appreciating, but I'm just noticing. Mm. And and if they're older and you're starting this for the first time, which let me tell you, you are not the only person out there for sure, then then it's okay. You're starting a new pattern. You're starting a new, and they have to get used to it. So they might think you're nuts and they might say you're nuts. And if they ask you to stop doing it, then that's okay to stop. Mm-hmm. I would maybe try to not notice as many verbs, but I would still notice an effort. So if a kid comes home with an A, if my kid comes home with an A, I'm never like, good job. I'm proud of you. I'm like, wow, you must have really listened. I saw you studying for that test. You clearly were reading through your notes. That's how I respond. Verb, verb, verb. I love that. I love that. So what happens when you're, you're on this journey, you're using, you're changing patterns on how you're speaking to your children. You're noticing more, you're verbalizing what you're noticing, but their teachers are not open to this. They don't have time for this. They're burnt out themselves and they go to school and they're kind of just beat down. And, you know, when you don't have that advocacy at school, when you don't have amazing teachers, which, you know, most of them are, but sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you just have not really emotionally intelligent teachers that your kids are with all day. What do you, what do you advise to your clients then? So the first step is to, of course, have grace because unfortunately, teachers are not taught about gifted, let alone to eat. Mm-hmm. So number one, buy them the book. <laughs> but number two is, um, and I have a whole section on the top 10 tips for collaborative um, communication between parents and teachers. And so re- it's really hard, Liz, to go into advocacy on behalf of your 2E child and not get emotional. Yeah. But that is really important because when we're in our amygdala, it hijacks our prefrontal cortex or our thinking brain. So we have to try to really have some talking points and be very clear and come with the idea that I'm actually coming to make your job easier. Let me help you understand. In fact, part of my advocacy um, chapters speak to the importance of scheduling a meeting at the beginning of the year, if you can, and and we're not at the beginning of the year when you're listening to this possibly, and that's okay too. You can still ask for a meeting with as many teachers as who see your kid from gym class to music class, to art class, all the classes, as many as you can get there and, and start by saying, here's what you're going to see. And here's what it means because our two kids are complex. And sometimes they do something outwardly that doesn't actually indicate what's going on inwardly. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to help them again with perspective. And so it's, and then let me just tell you, one of my favorite questions to ask at a parent teacher conference is tell me what you love about my kid. Mm -hmm. And if they don't love anything about your kid, it's time to think about maybe switching classes. Mm. There's got to be something they love about your kid. Mm -hmm. Otherwise your kid feels that. Yeah. Now, That may not be realistic in all situations, in which case you have to start thinking about how can I build up this kid's self-confidence in the best way? And as a parent, that's hard because they think that we have to do that because we're their parents. But there have been times in my past when my, my, one of my kids had a real crash and burn moment and school totally reacted inappropriately. And yeah, we went to ice cream. (laughs) sometimes it's just like you know sometimes it's just like you know what that sucked Mm -hmm. let's go have ice cream 
you know, and just not even make a big deal. And at other times, we really have to validate. That's another um, another strategy I talk about in the book is validate, reiterate. When can you, instead of solving the problem, really important to let our kids kind of go through their emotions and share them with us and validate those emotions. Um, and there are ways to do that that are really important so a child feels heard and seen. And actually, it then dissipates that angst that they have. I think that's so true. I mean, I think when you do really see and hear your child and it's not coming from a controlling aspect, but really like uh, almost like a guide in their life. Yeah. You don't yep. own them. Um, they, that behavior, that reactive behavior goes away on its own. Yes, because they that you're filling their resilience bucket. So I call it the resilience bucket. There are things that fill it and things that empty it. When we can validate our kids it fills that bucket because actually we're holding some of the hardness for them. Mm-hmm, like scaffolding. Yeah. But also just literally they are overflowing with emotions. If we can hold some of those emotions, then they have more room for other stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It just, it's, it's so inspiring to have authors like you on the show who are doing this work in the world, because I think about the potential of all these kids out there whose parents do pick up the book, who do start to understand and implement your strategies. And then they embolden their children to do really amazing things in the world. And, you know, it's just the times that we're in now, we need creative, brilliant minds to think of new solutions to problems that we currently are facing and have faced in the past. Like that's, that for me is very meta and it's very exciting to, to be able to share your work with, with my audience all over the world, not just America. Well, thank you. I like to say that I give parents permission to parent differently because <laughs> that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. Yeah. Um, Julie, do you have any lasting message for our listener? We are just at the end of time here. If there's anything from the book or your work that you'd want them to remember, what would that be? You are the just right parent for your child. As parents of two kids, we have our own self-doubt. We think, oh my God, I completely did that wrong. Why didn't I do that? I'm always doing... Okay, we have no purpose for the rear view mirror. We don't even use them in our cars anymore. We use backup cameras. <laughs> so throw your rear view mirror out and every day starts afresh. And by the way, when you do feel like you screw up, I want you to say, yes, Why? it's a role modeling moment for your kid. You're living life. Life is not the plateau of easiness. Life is the struggle and it's not what happens, but how you handle it that matters. Mm, I love that. Okay, Julie, where can our listener find out more about you, work with you potentially and get the book? Thank you. Well, the book is everywhere. Um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you can also get it on my website. Um, So my website is withunderstandingcomescalm.com. And we also have a free newsletter called Gifted and Distractible, which I highly recommend subscribing to. It comes out once a week. It has my blog, my vlog, articles for all of our stakeholders, and then sort of a roundup of where all the things are happening all over the world for the gifted and two-way population. Um, and I'm everywhere on social media, and I post a lot of really cool stuff, um, whether it's inspirational or informational so everywhere, Julie Skolnick with understanding comes calm or let's talk to E. That's every social media you can think of in YouTube. Love it. Again, thank you so much for sharing your time, your work, with my audience. No doubt you are already making the world a better place. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for helping me amplify this voice. 
You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast, where we navigate the beautiful chaos of motherhood together. For more inspiration and insights, please visit our website at motherhoodunstressed.com, or you can visit me on social at motherhoodunstressed. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Until next time, stay unstressed, empowered, and embrace the joy of motherhood. Take care, and I'll catch you on the next episode.